Judge Crawford, in the previous interview, we looked at your early life and your academic career. And during this, you produced a prodigious body of scholarly work, stretching back to the 70s when you were a lecturer at Adelaide. It has to be remembered that this was in addition to your remarkable workload of teaching, supervising students, administration, cases, and arbitrations. With such a vast array of publications to survey, I've had to be selective, and for this I apologise. I've confined myself to your 10 books that are listed in your Who's Who entry. We've already mentioned two, written while you were at Sydney, your Australian Courts of Law and Rights of Peoples. Of the remaining eight, I've looked in some detail at five, your 1979 Creation of States and International Law, second edition in 2006, or 2012 Cambridge Companion to International Law, 2012 Brownlee's Principles of International Law, the 8th edition, 2013 State Responsibility, the General Part, and 2014 Chance Order Change, the Course of International Law. To start with a few general observations made by Professor Philippe Sands in 2015 in Essays in Honour, he said that creation of states and Brownlee, which he rated a minor miracle, are your best books. Would you agree with his assessment? Well, it's not really for me to agree or disagree, I think. <coughs> it's a matter for the, the users of a book to find if it's useful. <coughs> I'm fond of the second edition of Statehood because that reflects more what I had in mind when I wrote the original thesis. Uh, it's been thoroughly updated and incorporates a lot of material subsequent to 1979, of course. Um, Brownlee is controversial in a way, in the sense that I made quite a lot of changes to the 7th edition. There's a problem with textbooks, in the, at least in the English tradition. Um, many of the current textbooks go back uh, a long way. I mean, most obviously Oppenheim, originally published in 1904, um, and there's very little of, if anything, of the original Oppenheim left. Um, we've got new editions of Briarley. Briarley is a book that's almost impossible to edit because it was written at a certain very specific time with a certain very specific attitude towards the subject, which um, is really very difficult to replicate. Um, it's fair enough when authors continue to update their own work, as with the second edition of Statehood, though I don't plan a further edition. And you, you've got Shaw, for example, which is now, I think, in its seventh edition. Each of those editions being done by Professor Shaw. So, there's, it's got authenticity from that point of view. Um, the problem, however, is when you get a general survey in a, a long book, it's extremely difficult to keep it up to date. There are so many things that happen. Um, the seventh edition of Brownlee had fallen behind, and there's a book review by Vaughan Lowe of an earlier edition in which he makes that comment in a very um, measured way it hasn't been kept up to date. And it's a very difficult thing to do because 
the approach to a particular topic which you take when you write a chapter. Um, obviously individual details can change, but there can be so many changes in a particular field that the approach really needs to be rethought. And this is true, for example, in relation to national criminal law and probably in relation to jurisdiction, certainly in relation to immunity from jurisdiction and other topics as well, and dispute settlement. So this creates a problem for a new editor coming to the book. On the other hand, the Principles of International Law was a major work. Um, I used it myself when I was an undergraduate. It's part of the bloodstream of the subject, you might say. It would be a pity that there's still very important perceptions about the international system, about sovereignty, um, about the role of law, which are implicit in the treatment and which, in my view, are still valid. And that and a sort of um, filial respect for Ian Brownlee made me agree to do the 8th edition. I know there is a feeling amongst some um, that I went too far with the amendments. I'm glad that Philippe Sands doesn't share that view, and the reviewers in general don't share that view. The reviewers have been very positive. Koskin Hemi's review in the British Yearbook, for example. Um, and my attitude to that, which I've never disguised, is that the new editor really has to do what has to be done to keep the work current not just in details, but also in principle. And that's what I did with some considerable help from research assistants, because it's impossible to do it myself, or, um, and it's, it's for readers of the book to judge whether it's useful. There is a ninth edition plan that's in, in advanced state. Um, the other works that I would mention Chance Order Change was my general course at the Hague Academy, um, and it reflects a, a general view of international law and covers a range of topics within the field. In a, it's, not, it's not a conventional general course, it's not a mini textbook. It's an attempt to try and solve a number of problems. Looking at international law as a system which is not preordained, which is not determined ultimately by any set of formulas or principles which is extremely contingent but nonetheless has an ordering force and so chance is the original happenstance international law happened to be developed in Western Central Europe and spread to the rest of the world because of the happening of colonization. But having done so, it provides the language of much of the language of order in the international system. If you're dealing with diplomatic relations or uh, the immunity of foreign state property or any number of subjects, human rights, international criminal law, international cooperation in criminal law matters, 
you're forced to use international law because that's what's there. Uh, it's not that better systems can't be devised. Europe is trying to devise a better system um, with variable success, but considerable success. Um, and then, so you, you get a form of order which arises out of something approximating to chaos. And you then get challenges to that order over time, as there have been challenges to the rules of immunity or to the principle that states are only, the only subjects of international law and dozens of other propositions. And, and so the system reorders over time. It's that dynamic, that kaleidoscope, which I tried to capture in Chance Order Change. Again, it's a matter for readers to judge. The other book I mentioned is State Responsibility of the General Part. Um, I should start by saying that the reference to the general part is not because I'm going to write a special part of State Responsibility. It's an acknowledgement of the great work of Randall Williams in criminal law, a former fellow of Jesus College, which is my college. Um, criminal law of the general part, which was his canonical statement of the general principles of liability under in English criminal law. And I was copying that idea for state responsibility, bearing in mind that the general part of state responsibility is the secondary rules of state responsibility as incorporated in the ILC articles. And my, my the attempt in state responsibility was to justify the articles to the profession, to explain what they mean, to put them into their perspective, to deal with some issues which are not dealt with in the articles, for example, succession to responsibility, and, and to provide a reasoned, extended account of state responsibility as it's developed, including the development the RLC articles in practice since they were adopted. So I, I would mention those works as well. Professor yes, um, Sands also comments that you are more at home in what he calls the world of practice and process, which offers particular attractions than in the realm of theory. And would you agree that this is an accurate reflection of your attitude position on international law? Well, I'm not a theoretician. I had a choice to work in theory of international law and turned it down. Um, I'm very interested in the history of international law. And I think that um, there's more history in international law than there is theory, in the sense that I think international law is more determined by its history than it is by any systematic body of a priori thinking. I've tried to keep abreast of general theories of international law and of the literature of international law theory, which has developed a great deal in my, during the period of my career. I taught a course at Cambridge, in fact my first change at Cambridge was to introduce a new LLM course called History and Theory of International Law, which I co-taught with Philip Allott quite some time. Um, and that 
was exp expressly based on the proposition that in order to understand international law, you needed to understand the theory, but you needed also to understand the history and bring the two together. Um, it's, it would be idle to deny that the contributions I've made are more to the general practice of international law and to its substantive content than they are to general theories. But I'm not sure that it's... Uh, we, we can say things about the theory of international law, the relationship to international law and international practice, international relations. And in chance or a change, I deal with some, some central theoretical questions about custom and treaties and so on. Um, but I do so from a perspective of someone who is a lawyer. Um, my attitude to international law is that it is law, uh, though a special sort of law because of the circumstances of international relations. I don't think there's any value in denying the legal character of international law, uh, though you have to keep your powder dry and you have to realise that laws are not, not always complied with. There are acute problems of compliance and performance. But in the end, if something has to be done for the future in international relations, law is, international law is one of the instruments we have, one of the few instruments we have. People who are unhappy about particular aspects of international relations always or almost always propose new legal rules or new legal institutions or whatever it might be. Um, a lot of the critical literature, a lot of the realist literature is written by people who are acutely unhappy with the system and who would like to see it other than it is. And heavens, heavens above, they're right. So I think you, as an as a international lawyer, you've got to stick to your last. You've got to stick to what you can do, what you, what you effectively do. When you're asked by clients um, to address a particular problem, you've got to tell them what the law is. I think there is. I think it's meaningful to talk about what the law is in most areas. Obviously, there are times when the law is subject to violent change, and you may have to point that out. You've also got to point out to them that the fact that the law is X doesn't necessarily mean that the law will be complied with, and you've got to come up with ideas to do that. But the further fact is that the processes that exist for dealing with international legal issues do produce results. Not always the best results, not always the results that people want. But heavens knows the consequences of not complying, of ignoring international law, can often be worse. So it's a... I, I certainly don't, don't deny theory. One of the changes I made to Brownlee was to produce an introductory chapter. Um, which didn't exist in the seventh edition, which goes into the theory to some extent and certainly mentions the key th 
theorists and key institutional writers in the subject over time. Looking at the chronology of your book writing record, there are some interesting features and perhaps I can just ask you about these as they reflect on the broad sweep of your creative book writing. If we could just use your publication dates as anchor points. Your first creative period was your Adelaide early Sydney career. There were three books in 79, 82 and 88. Could you sum up those years? Well, of course, at the time I was writing a lot of other stuff. Um, 160 or 70 articles, and some of those took, took them just as long as the book would have taken. I wrote a, a, quite a lot on state immunity during that period, including, of course, the Australian Royal Farm Commission report on state immunity, which um, is in, in effect a monograph. It's a monograph leading to a particular act of Parliament, and it explains the act of Parliament and has to be read with it. Um, I wrote a long piece on O'Connell's work with special reference to state, state succession. So, I, although I've never, I never wrote, wrote a monograph on immunity and I've never wrote a monograph on state succession, I did write substantial amounts. Um, so the books are episodes in the course of a general career of writing international law. I wrote quite a lot about international law and English law, especially for the yearbook in the course of the British, during the British cases, and some other things on that as well. And again, I never wrote, although I planned one stage to write a book about international law and English law, I never got around to doing it. So the books you write are sometimes epiphenomena of a career. I don't attach much importance to uh, periods, but that's for reasons to comment on. They followed a 14-year interlude before your next two works, both in 2002, and I assume that this book-free period coincided with your early Ural tenure, your first term as the director of the Lauterbach Centre, and then very significantly 14 International Court of Justice cases well, obviously that took up time. Uh, it, I think more significantly it coincided with my period on the International Law Commission um, when I wrote substantial works, uh, collective works of course, because I wasn't the only person involved, but I was leading the work on international criminal law or the International Criminal Court and then on state responsibility. And a lot of the work I've done since uh, draws on that work. Um, I didn't write a, a separate monograph during that period and I regret that, but there was a lot that was going on, so it happened. Yes. So during the next eight years, only, and I use the word relatively, one book appeared. Uh, that was your 2006 revamping of your Creation of States, the second edition. Presumably this lull coincided with the rigours of being the faculty chairman, or second term as the Lauterbach director, as well as revising the second edition. Yes, the revision of the second edition was a substantial piece of work. But again, it focused on, uh, uh, it incorporated a lot of material, which I'd produced in article or chapter form, 
for example, or in the form of opinions, the Scottish opinion, the Quebec opinion, uh, covered, was covered in that period, and they were incorporated in the book, the substance of them, uh, extra work on self-determination and secession, you know, a major article on secession in the yearbook, which itself drew, drew on the work I'd done for the Canadian Supreme Court. Um, so, I was conscious of the book, non-book distinction, but only to a certain extent. You, you write what has to be written, and in some cases it took the form of journal articles, British yearbook articles and so on, American journal articles. This period was followed by a veritable outpouring of scholarly creativity. Five books in four years, 2010, 2012, there were two, 13 and 14, which included Professor Sands's Minor Miracle. And this flourish coincided with the last years of your Ewell tenure, while you had eight cases before the ICJ. So it was a prodigious effort before you were elevated to the Court of Justice and I wondered to what you attributed this remarkable purple patch. Well, I was conscious of passing the time, the things I wanted to do. Uh, the things I agreed to do is, uh, in response to requests, for example, the 8th edition of Brownlee. But I did want to summarise my experience and responsibility, hence the State Responsibility book. Um, and. I had to give the Hague lectures, hence chance order change. Um, so it was a com combination of those things. I, I got I got more used to doing international court work and was able to do it perhaps with less effort, with with the help of the teams of people who I worked with. I worked a lot with Philippe, with Marcelo Cohen, Nico Schreiber, and others. And people from Matrix helped a lot. So. I had support and, and I was conscious that a big change was coming up with the end of my tenure at Cambridge and hopefully election to the court, so I wanted to make some statements before I came here. Perhaps we can turn now to your individual books and it goes without saying that I, I can't do justice to them here except in the broadest of terms. And for the most, I've relied heavily on learned reviews by experts in the field. The first is the creation of states in international law, Clarendon Press, 1979, based on your Oxford thesis under Professor Brownlee. And you did touch on this yesterday. I wondered if there's anything more that you can add to the to how you became interested in, in this subject. Well. Statehood is a central subject of international law. It would be odd if, as a central subject of international law, international law had nothing to say about it. Um, but international law has to categorise entities as states or non-states. South Australia is not a state in international law, Australia is, and there are reasons for that. New Zealand is a state in international law, Tasmania is not. I'm taking examples from close to home. We can say the same thing about Scotland uh, or about Catalonia or whatever it might be. Um, the question is how that process occurred. Um, 
it was an intensively historical process, and it's true that the attitude of other states in the form of recognition and practices cognate to recognition played a major role. And the literature on state, statehood had got, got itself into a bind because of the dichotomy between the declaratory and the consistent theories of recognition. Um, and as a general matter, when a subject of international law gets categorised in that way into either or, there's something gone wrong analytically. It's true of the uh, relationship to international law and English law, which was um, once formulated in terms of um, incorporation versus transformation with the terms that were used. And if you're forced to say, is this incorporation or transformation, you've got to say, hang on, what's going on here? Why, why do I have to make that choice? The same thing was true of this declaratory theory. Um, the consistent theory was defective in the sense that it carried the proposition that recognition constitutes the state. And although there may be circumstances in which collective recognition does constitute the state, individual recognition by one other state can't possibly do so. Because it would infringe the basic premises of international law. It would give quasi-legislative authority or actual legislative authority to one, one state, one sovereign in relation to the rights of others, and that can't be correct. So there's a fundamental problem with it, which is not solved by the parts. Um, obligation to recognise, which um, there isn't an obligation to recognise um, in express terms, and was the, uh, they pulled that as a rabbit out of a hat in order to solve the dilemma. Uh, on the other hand, a mere declaratory theory leaves the status of entities essentially up to themselves, because they can say we exist because we have a certain level of power, and you have no choice but to accept that. And the world does have a choice. It's because the white minority government in Rhodesia wants, had power in Rhodesia and wanted to be independent, didn't mean the rest of the world had to accept it, and it didn't accept it. And we had to say, as a matter of international law, not simply as a matter of international politics, that there was no state of Rhodesia. That had consequences, and it had consequences in terms of the way in which the Rhodesian crisis was settled. It was settled by the reassertion of British authority over southern Rhodesia, leading to the creation of Zimbabwe. And I, my instinct, which I tried to justify in the book, was that this was a process which was just as much legal as other processes which we describe in unqualified as legal in relation to treaties or other subjects of international law. Of course, there are the problems, of in, the general problems of international law of indeterminacy, uncertainty, authority, dispute, but that, that's true across the field. It's not special to statehood. And it, wasn't, it didn't justify treating states as somehow extra-legal entities as outer space. That was the thesis. That's the thesis of the second edition. And I, I think it's fair to say that it's 
it's widely accepted now. The court, when it has problems of statehood, treats them as in an orthodox way by applying the general principles of international law to them without, the, without adhering to the idea that there's something special about statehood. It goes back to a theoretical question whether what's special about sovereignty. And if international law is a legal system, then sovereignty is part of international law and you can say things about it which are meaningful in terms of international law and that's that I believe. I think we, we, um, the, the modern effort of international law has been the effort of qualifying sovereignty without denying it. And I, my book was part of that process. You mentioned sovereignty. Um, apropos the EU's federalist vision, can you foresee its current nation states becoming mere components in a large federal state? And is this what you were alluding to as sovereignty pooling within the European Union in your Cambridge Companion piece? Um, it's impossible to predict what will happen with the European Union in 50 years' time. And I won't be there at the time, so I, don't, I have no idea. Um, I think it's a category, category mistake which some people make about the European Union, including some of the participants, to treat the European Union as if it was an entity, a state coming into existence. Um, it's a very subtly pervasive tendency. And it goes back to the idea that states are what matter. And in the end, it's the idea that unitary states matter more than divided states. And I don't see any reason why that should be true. If we say that states are not the only subjects of international law, and that international law can be developed and manifested in non-state ways, there's no reason why a non-state which, in which sovereignty is to some extent shared and controlled should feel that the need to become anything other than a state, uh, to, to become a state. It may be that it will, but I think it's very unlikely. And I think the tendency to push it in that direction creates countervailing forces of nationalism and so on, which are quite harmful. So I think uh, a fairly relaxed attitude to decision-making in regime formation is called for, uh, under which the European Union is what it is. Um, we can't get away from the fact that we think of international relations, including European relations, in terms of um, existing categories, treaty, consent, um, adjudication. But these are general legal categories which have a measure of autonomy and they're not subject to an inevitable um, tendency of quote progression end quote towards a final state of absolute authority which is what sovereignty used to be thought of in the 19th century we don't think of sovereignty as absolute authority now and thank heavens not because we've seen what absolute authority does it kills millions of people We saw that very clearly in the Second World War. 
Crawford, coming back to your book, would you describe it as your most successful book in as much as it's been the longest running and perhaps the most original? I'm, I'd like to give the state responsibility a bit longer to see how it goes. Uh, it's not inconceivable, I might do a second edition of that. Um, to incorporate the subsequent developments, we'll, we'll wait and see. But certainly, that's the only competitor. Those are the two books. If you ask me which of the two books I'm proudest of, that's Creation of States and State Responsibility. The publication of that book must have been a great event, and the praising comments must have had quite an impact on your future writing strategy and your confidence at such an early age. Yes, it was nice to get the American Society Award, and it was nice to have such a wide range of reviews. In those days, books, there were fewer books, and therefore there were more, individual books were much more reviewed. Book reviewing in international law has fallen into a, a not too much to call a slough of despond. Um, it's not, it's not uncommon for quite good monographs in international law now not to be reviewed at all or to be reviewed only a handful of times, and I think that's a great pity. It was very well received by the reviewers. Witkin in the Harvard International Law Journal said that it was the first comprehensive English book on the subject. Why had this topic not been tackled before? I don't know. I, I, I said in our first talk that it was comments that hadn't been tackled, made by Brownlee and Jennings, which led me to do it. Um, it took, uh, it was partly the consistent declaratory distinction and the throttle, the throttle hold that recognition had on the subject, um, and the feeling that it was too difficult. I don't know. Uh, lots of monographs hadn't been written in those days, which have now been written, because we've been through an intensive period of uh, literature generation in international law, perhaps to excess. Um, John Martha, Oxford University Press, has been counting the number of international law books published each year, and they're in excess of 400 in each of the last three years. That means every day a new international law book is published. And they're not all good books, but quite a lot of them are good books. And it's a efflorescence of scholarship um, for good and, good and evil. She picks out one of your central points. Is statehood a fact once it is recognised or does it have to fulfil normative rules on page 594? And you claim the latter. Can you remember what determined this crucial view so early in your career, presumably while you were a student at Oxford in the early 70s? Well, it's this idea that you couldn't... Statehood was not a fact um, in, in the sense that it's an object which you're obliged to accept. Um, just because Ian <coughs> Smith in Rhodesia and some Rhodesia declared unilateral independence and had the police and the army under his control didn't mean we were obliged to accept white minority rule in southern Rhodesia. Just because the South African apartheid regime was able to corral the Afri African 
quote, tribal, end quote, groups into Bantu stands, trans and so on, didn't mean we were obliged to accept that. If you say you're obliged to accept it, then you're basically accepting white minority rule of South Africa in perpetuity. And the rest of the international community is not compelled to do that. Um, of course, in normal circumstances, where an entity establishes itself with support of its population over a significant period of time. It can come to be accepted by other states and with the, with the consequences that follow from that. But that's not a process which is determined by the category of fact. It is determined by the category of fact. There's no point going around denying facts. But there's every point in going around denying that Southern Rhodesia was a state. To say that statehood is a question of fact is a form of unilateral disarmament on the part of the rest of the system. In respect of, not just in respect of power, but in respect of values, such as majority rule by population. The point you've been mentioning <clears throat> was picked up by one of the reviewers, also very praising Boyle. Uh, about illegality, thwarting self-determination as a criterion. Um, I wondered whether if one state does recognise another where such criteria have been violated, are there currently any international sanctions that can be automatically applied to the recognising state? International sanctions are never automatically applied. <coughs> but the question is what is the legal situation and can it change? And the answer is yes, uh, one has to take a dynamic attitude. If you took the view that uh, it's cognate to questions of acquisition of territory by the use of force in interstate relations, if you took the view that East, East Timor was effectively subjugated by Indonesia, which it was, and the result was the people of East Timor had lost their separate identity. And we weren't compelled to take that view. Some states did, including Australia, for a while. Um, but then the system changed, and the people of East Timor were recognised as having a right to independent existence. Um, unless you, you, if you get, you have to get over this myth that because someone shouts sovereign, uh, consequences automatically follow. It's not true. Well, uh, also praise the great analysis and in-depth of individual cases. You said it was a very impressive and a thorough study. And this must have been very satisfying for you. We were 31 years at the time. <clears throat> well, it's the function of lawyers to examine cases in detail and to reach conclusions. And there was a great range of cases to, to look at, including some pretty eccentric ones. The Free City of Danzig, which was the subject of eight permanent court decisions, for example. I had to look at that. The position of Cyprus, still regrettably unresolved. Um, and so on, the position of Palestine. And that was the function of the book was to establish some sort of general framework for thinking about statehood and then to illustrate that by reference to as many cases as possible. That's why it was so long.
Well, before we leave this book, one review is worth mentioning, just for the record, and that's Michael Akehurst in the Society for Public Teachers of Law, who described it as a first-rate piece of scholarship. Must have been very pleasing to you at the time. And I had a very high regard for Michael Akehurst, who, who I only met once. He was a very good progressive scholar. That brings us to your second edition, and the obvious question, why you waited 27 years to produce this edition of what had been a groundbreaking book? Well, life happens. Life happens to you when you're making plans. I'm not sure. The reason I did the second edition was my being forced to leave out so much from the first edition. And I thought in the end it was most undesirable that the leading book on statehood should not have an account of the Palestine problem, for example. And so much had happened, and so much had happened in which I'd had some involvement. Quebec, for example, Kosovo, um, that I wanted to the breakup of Yugoslavia generally. I wanted to incorporate all that and bring it up to date. It just took quite a long time because I had other things to do. At the beginning of chapter... I should say, to be fair, I had a great deal of help from my senior associate, Tom Grant, who was a research student of mine, who worked on the statehood, and he played a great, a very helpful role in that process, as is acknowledged in the book. And he's still at Cambridge? Still at Cambridge, yes. You... At the beginning of chapter 2, page 38, Criteria for Statehood, you cite both Briley and George Sell, apropos of the ILC 1948 attempt to define a state, and the former said it would be difficult and highly controversial, and the latter that after 50 years he couldn't do it, and didn't expect to find out what a state was before he died, which was in 1961. Do you think that 70 years later it is possible to say what a state is in a paragraph or two in contrast to an 800-page book? Yes, it is. And if we don't know what a state is, why do we use the term so often? And of course, we're not looking for a lexical definition. We're looking for something more serious than that. But we are looking for a general concept. And there's a general concept in widespread use. There'd be something wrong with a subject in which the most important concept was completely undefinable, unless it's astrophysics. On this issue, you say, page 45, best known formulation of the basic criteria for statehood is Article 1 of the Montevideo Convention. You also say on page 47 that the Convention's formula is hackneyed. Does there exist another more fresh or modern formula? No, um, but let's get rid of the Montevideo Convention. It does never be applied in a normal way. It, it, it's imperfect, partial, <coughs> incomplete, question-making. Uh, I say all that in the book. Um, We've got to give up the search for definitions as if definitions solve problems. 
we've, we've got to clarify our concepts, and we have a concept of state and national law under which, incontestably, Israel is a state, New Zealand is a state, Samoa, Western Samoa is a state, and other entities are not, and there are some entities, you know, shadow zone, where you would have to ask serious questions, Kosovo, for example. And, and there are processes by which that happens. Somalia is a state despite the problems with its government. Uh, we can't, or we shouldn't at least willingly accept the conclusion that terms we use all the time don't have any meaning. The reviews were very praising and I looked at four of them by Wood, Nasser, Michael Wood, Gia, Michelle Burgess and Professor McCorkadale. All were praising a tour de force stands alone in its field by Sir Michael, an invaluable contribution, vital resource, perceptive by Burgess, and Professor McCorkadale said it was in command of his field, highly recommended, high quality scholarship. And this must have been very satisfying, showing that your ideas had survived well for 30 years. Well, you do something and you move on, and so it's for other people to appreciate it. <laughs> what, what you've done, if they do appreciate it. And, and Michael Wood's remarks were gratifying, I think, very well of him. He raised a topical issue about uh, the failed state. He deemed this a brilliant coda in your book. Uh, you look at this in your conclusion section, but some might argue that there has to be a possibility that the state can fail or perhaps every state that ever existed would still persist? Well, there's a distinction between the dissolution of a state or the termination of a state which is definitive and which has consequences in terms of territorial sovereignty and nationality and so on, and the failure of a system of government. And people were using the phrase failed state to refer quite misleadingly to failures of government. There are failures of government in, let's say, South Sudan. I don't want to pick on South Sudan, but it comes to mind. It doesn't mean that South, the people of South Sudan are somehow revert to their status as, Sudan, as nationals of North Sudan. Um, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to rescue the people of the state who are the ultimate beneficiaries, as I've taught of international law from the thrall of governments. And international law operates on the assumption that governments have control peoples and determine their future and subject to limited constraints. And that may be true, but let's let's work on the constraints because in the long run I don't want to have to agree with Philip Allott's vision of national law as a conspiracy of governors. I think it's more than that. Yeah. Uh, Robert McCorkadale took up the, your concept of sovereignty and he said that you avoided dealing with the concept of sovereignty by arguing that it applies as a legal right of presumption only to territories accepted as states. And he said that you 
We're not taking cognizance of alternative views, such as people's sovereignty or shared sovereignty. Well, shared sovereignty is certainly possible. You don't have co co condominia. And they're very unusual, and you normally have to have uh, a stipulation in order for shared sovereignty to exist. Um, I'm sus suspicious of the idea that non-state entities are sovereign. We have enough problems with the concept of sovereignty in relation to states, and states are subject to disciplines, legal and non-legal disciplines. Um, non-states are much less subject to them because the international system is built up and built around the concept of statehood. And to take one simple example, only states can be parties to contentious cases for the International Court of Justice. And, and if you want to have a, an arbitration involving a non-state, you've got to make special provision. Um, as, for, for example, in the ABA arbitration. Um, so, the concept of sovereignty applied to non-states seems to be inherently problematic. And if that makes me old-fashioned, then I'm old-fashioned. So overall, do you see states as the entities that are necessary for international law to even function? In the present conception of international law, yes, they are necessary. And no one seriously proposes to abandon them. And Many people, and an increasing number of people, because what is often ignored is the successes of the state system in the modern period, um, to a large extent because of developments in India and China, but for reasons, uh, even in Africa, I might say. There's been a significant development of people moving out of dire poverty. There are too many people still in the situation of dire poverty, but there's been real improvement and in the systems of government. When we have a problem, whether it's the extinction of the great whales, or now the problem of plastic pollution, um, there's a system in place which can address it. It involves intellectual property, it involves um, human dynamism, but it also involves governments, because governments are the instituted entities which have got the capacity to legislate and to coordinate their activities. And international law is a, is a law of coordination addressed at human problems. And the human problems we have can't be solved by individual assertions of sovereignty. That's absolutely clear. The global, global warming, the ozone layer, these can't be solved by the United States alone or by the Russian Federation alone or by China alone. They have to be solved by coordination and that means that the the apparatus of coordination, which is in part provided by international law, is really essential. It is 12 years since the second edition appeared to higher claim. Have there been any international developments that have advanced your thinking on this crucial topic? I, not in essence, I think. I think, I think the basic conceptions. Well, the basic arguments made in the book are still valid. But it may be a simple function of arteriosclerosis on my part. <laughs> Advancing age. Well, at 
brings us to your 2012 Brownlee's Principles of Public International Law, published by OUP, and the reviews were excellent by Professor Koskinyemi, Paparinskis, Sender, Michael Wood, and Bjorg. This was the second of your two books that Professor Sand said were your best, The Minor Miracle, and it appeared in this purple patch of five books in the latter years of your time at Cambridge. You must have done the work simultaneously with your second term as director of the Lauterbach Centre. Could you describe the circumstances? I mean, you have touched on it. Is there anything that you would want to add? I had a great deal of help from my students, who I paid uh, for doing their work. I weren't paid at professional rates, but I paid at research student rates. And we checked every reference, we updated the things as much as we could. We corrected out-of-date statements. Um, and we did some restructuring. Um, and all of, that, all of that work is acknowledged in the preface. Koskinyemi said it was the most impressive English language textbook available and Paparinsky said very impressive, wide-ranging, nuanced, best English language text. Exhaustive reference, highly recommended. Sender and Wood described it as excellent, <clears throat> highly recommended, preeminent in the field. Bjorg from Bristol said it was a masterpiece, the fruits of awesome labour, sombre and elegant prose. Are you happy with the final result and its reception? Yeah, I was obviously very happy about some of those remarks because, as you say, it was controversial that I made so many changes. And, and I've really tried to deal with that controversy and there's nothing to add. I might just pick up on <coughs> a few points from Marty Koskinyemi's review, which looked at the way you'd written the book, and he wondered before he read it, whether you'd retain Brownlee's oddly appealing British idiosyncrasy, given that you were an Australian. But he suggested by writing the chapters as systemic holes, linking doctrines and practices which previously stood by themselves, you did not retain Brownlee's idiosyncrasies. He said that you indicated your intention to do this by adding the historical and doctrinal introduction. So this was a conscious strategy to counter Brownlee's eccentricity, which, as Koskinyemi put it, had driven students, including myself, mad, because <laughs> it had demanded one had to figure out the conclusions oneself. Well, of course, there's a great virtue of a book that it makes you think for yourself, and Brownlee did that. I tried not to lose that, and I tried to keep the characteristic assertions of Brownlee For example, he describes sovereignty in other chapters as the um, core constitutive principle of national law, or core constitutional principle of national law, he calls it. And I kept that statement, and I kept that approach. Um, I, was, I knew Ian very well and worked a lot with him, um, and I, my attitude was not that far away from his, although it was different in some respects. Um, where, where I disagreed with what he'd said, I 
this agreement is reflected. Um, in relation to nationality, uh, there's one area where he clearly had put a great deal of thought and work into the chapters on nationality, which were based on a British yearbook article of his on nationality. And out of respect for that view, even if I didn't entirely share it, I kept his, his approach to nationality, under which not a bone is rightly decided. I think the modern consensus, which is reflected in the ILC's work on diplomatic protection, is that not a bone is wrongly decided. Um, and if I had to rewrite those chapters myself, I might reach a different conclusion. But for the most part, it was possible. Uh, the treatment of human rights, for example. Um, Brown, uh, there's a great deal of material added on human rights because so much has occurred. But the, the, the core structure of human rights uh, treaties is as Brownlee said. Um, human rights are rights against the state um, protected by legal instruments, mostly in treaty form, um, which have been added to each other by process of accretion. And uh, I don't think it's possible to say there is such a thing as an imminent And, and categorical conception of any particular right. And if that makes me a positivist, then I'm a positivist. I'm not an avoid positivist, but um, there's no rule or theory or concept that the human right to property has to be the same in Europe as it is in the European South America. It depends on the formulations in the text. And sovereignty, as applied to treaty making, allows states to make, to come up with different formulations. There may be good formulations, there may be bad formulations, but they're, they're, they're what we have. And if your function as an adjudicator is to apply those treaties, then you, you start with the text. And you're constrained by the text. And I'm very strongly opposed to the view that, um, which you get in some versions of um, critical legal studies, that texts, uh, and some versions of realism, that texts are not a constraint. Um, if texts are not a constraint, then we're out of business. Very interesting. So your, your difference in treatment um, led Koskinyemi to make a point which I found very interesting. He said that while this did make the book more readable and coherent, it no longer gave the impression created by Brownlee that international law topics or titles or principles had, and I quote, fallen from the sky and represented some past case that had emerged from the vicissitudes of history where international law was a wholly empirical phenomenon topics and rules emerging out of practical needs. Yeah, I'm not sure I agree with that. I, I think, I mean, obviously, didn't fall from the sky. Um, but that's a metaphor. Um, particular national rules came into existence quite often by chance, as I say, in chance of a change, or in response to specific needs which may change 
and, and you've got to acknowledge the profoundly contingent historical character of international law. And that makes me, I suppose, a constructivist, but the cover, for, the, the cover image of Chancellor Change is a constructivist image by a British artist um, with an abstract work which was created partly by chance, deliberately, it was set up a mechanism to do that. And that's what the international law we have is different because certain people did things on certain days. And you've got to acknowledge that. And it doesn't amount to a metaphysics of international law, except to the extent that in, in any field of human endeavour, if you do something, you're implying a certain version of human life. Um, but it's not. Well, I come back to saying it's contingent. Um, Kosciuszko is the greatest theorist of international law of the 21st century, and I'm grateful to him for his praise. I don't always agree with him, but we get on well. Paparinskis raises an interesting point. He claims that Brownlee and Crawford are not necessarily known for holding the same legal views, and may very well be invoked to support significantly different arguments. Yet he notes that you state there was a need for an overhaul with the preservation of the general spirit and tone of Brownlee's work. How difficult was it to manage such differences and were there instances where you had to abandon this preservation in favour of accuracy or your strongly held opinion? Well, I'll give him one instance that the part dealing with nationality, which is respectful of Brownlee's views on nationality and effective link. Um, beyond that, no. I was broadly aligned with Brownlee's views. Brownlee was positivist, uh, left liberal positivist in his earlier life. As many of us, he became more conservative as he aged. Um, but his basic metaphysic didn't change. And I was fairly closely aligned to that side. I wasn't aware that, I was aware that there were tensions in what to change, what to include. One of the constraints was the publishers said it couldn't be any, get any longer. Um, and it was a bit, little bit longer because of chapter one. Um, but for everything that was put in, something had to be left out. And that was quite difficult. And there's been a difficulty with the ninth edition. The ninth edition is exactly the same length as the seventh edition. Um, Brownlee was very fond of uh, a small number of writers of the fifties, of which first Morris was typical. Waldock, of course, Waldock was his doctoral supervisor. Uh, were very different characters. Uh, and I've maintained a lot of those references because they're historically important. Um, though there are fewer of them in the ninth edition than there are in the eighth because of the length constraint. In 
In, in a review by Sender and Wood, they raise a fundamental point. Their review was of two books, yours and the seventh edition of Brownie's Law of Nations by Professor Clapham. Yes. And they wondered why both you and Professor Clapham still felt it, I quote, necessary in our day and time to stress that international law is law. Well, I, I think there, are widespread, there is widespread doubt in the general community about whether international law is law. And you've got to acknowledge that. And there are reasons for the doubt. And there are so many areas of disorder and so many cases of defiance of international law. And, and the, the ordinary person, the ordinary intelligent onlooker would expect a legal system to have consequences. And it's possible to say international law doesn't have consequences. It's not possible to do it if you look very carefully at the subject. Um, but I think I still think that proposition has to be defended, and um, it matters particularly because the question is what is the role of the international lawyer? And the international lawyer isn't the same as the governor of the world. But if someone comes to you, uh, irrespective of whether they're a state or a non-state entity and says, what's the international law of X? If you can't provide an answer, a credible answer, then you shouldn't be doing what you're doing. You should be doing something else, perhaps becoming governor of the world. And international law is a discipline or a profession, I don't mind which you call it, in which a certain range of techniques, going back to heuristic devices of interpretation and historical analysis of what happened and produce certain outcomes. Does... Is, is ethnic cleansing genocide? Take just one question. Um, you could have, if you'd been defining the Genocide Convention, you could have defined the Genocide Convention to include ethnic cleansing. Uh, by ethnic cleansing, I mean the clearing out of people from a certain territory without necessarily exterminating them, um, or exterminating only a very few of them. And as a general matter, you can't equate ethnic cleansing and genocide as it's been defined. I mean, maybe we could have a better definition, but we're not going to get a better definition. So. One of the functions of international law is, is to be honest about the history of the subject and what the consequences of that history would be, and to believe that there are consequences. Uh, the world is not, uh, the world looks like a free for all. It's not as much of a free for all as all of that. Just a few of my own questions. Apropos the recent Elie Lautbach Symposium and Philippe Sands highlighting therein. Lemkin, Hirsch, Lauterbach differences of emphasis on human rights. I couldn't find in the index to Brownlee the terms genocide or crimes against humanity. I wondered if you would sum up, in your opinion, the issue of individual versus group rights before international tribunals, such as Nuremberg. Well, obviously, after East West Street and the ninth edition will contain a reference to those things. There, there is some discussion of genocide. Um, 
in the criminal law chapter, for example. Uh, there are human groups which have rights under international law and self-determination. People of East Timor have the right of self-determination. Uh, arguably, the people of Extan did not. And the reasons for that were historical. It wasn't that the people of East Timor had an inherent right which the people of Extan didn't have. It was that the principle of self-determination developed out of reaction against Western colonialism, which largely defined the peoples to whom it applied. That's why Tibet is not a state in East Timor, and Timor Leste is. And it may be a pity. I don't really have a view about whether it's a pity, but it's, it's the truth. International law is a way of telling the truth about the ought in international relations or one of the orts in the national relations. And I think it's a series of techniques, constrained, qualified, limited, and no doubt defective, that we have for doing that. We don't have all that many. So, apropos the Nuremberg Judge Porter, I wondered what you feel about the general principle of retrospective laws applied to crimes even of such a horrendous nature? Well, retrospectivity was a problem when it came to Nuremberg. And as I say in the sentence added to the chapter on criminal law in Brownlee, um, international criminal law began its modern career as a, a problem and a promise. In effect, the problem was the problem of retrospectivity. The promise was to correct that by applying those principles in the future. And when you've got a customary system, by definition there's an element of retrospectivity because the first first time you apply it, and there must be a first time. There was a time when there wasn't a rule against genocide. There was a time when there wasn't a rule against slavery. And so the first time you apply a rule against slavery, you can't say we make an exception for existing slaves. And at least not in principle, though you may in practice make some sort of exception. Um, so uh, some element of retrospectivity is inherent in the customary law system, and the, what makes it law is the determination to apply the new rule, the new norm, the new principle, in like cases in future. And that's what, um, that's the answer to the moral concern, which is a real one about retrospectivity. We've got to stop this. We've got to take the genocide seriously. To take it seriously involves an element of retrospectivity, but morally it's better to do that than the alternative, which is to allow Hitler to go free, notionally. Your section on use of force is almost double in size from Brownlee's. The ineffectiveness of international law in maintaining world peace between states is stark, and is this perhaps due to a lack of effective international sanctions? Yes, although I wouldn't overstate the ineffectiveness of international law in relation to world peace. There's a great deal more peace around than we think, and most states will never go to war with most other states. And we're dominated by a 
a few situations, um, we know which ones they are, Syria, North Korea, and there's a tendency to say that because um, there's active force going on in certain parts of the world, therefore there's no constraints. There are constraints. And they're not as good as we would like. And it's a very difficult thing to do, to, given the history of humankind as a history of, of warfare. It's very difficult to create a peaceful system. But the virtues of a peaceful system outweigh the disadvantages of it. That brings us to your next book, the 2012 Cambridge Companion to International Law, which was conceived while Professor Koskinyany was the good heart in government 2008-9. Could you describe the circumstances and how you decided on the format, and also from whom to invite contributions? Well, uh, as these things happened, Cambridge approached me and asked if I were interested in editing it. Cambridge Companion, and Marty was coming, I was pleased to facilitate that, and I wanted to work with him, so we agreed to do it together, and we agreed on the people we respected, some people we respected, we couldn't choose everyone to write the chapters. Um, we haven't done a second edition, largely because we both had other priorities, but I thought it was a useful compilation. Um, and it's so well. Your article or your chapter in that volume, Sovereignty as a Legal Value, was written long before this became a prominent political issue in the UK, within the context of its returning as a Brexit topic. And you wrote on page 120 that within the state, sovereignty involves a monopoly of governing authority. So having passed functions, for example, supremacy of parliament and judicial decisions over to EU institutions, would you say that the UK is currently a sovereign state? And when, if we leave the EU and this sovereignty comes back, where will it go? Of course it's a sovereign state. The, the, the functions that were transferred to the EU were transferred with the consent of the UK and therefore in accordance with the principle of sovereignty. Or not coerced. And the principle of sovereignty doesn't require any particular form of government. Uh, it's consistent with a variety of different forms of government, including um, the sharing of governmental functions between state and supra-state entities, which is what happens with the EU. Um, Britain is no less and no more sovereign outside the EU than within. It may have more formal powers, it may have less authority, it may have less prestige, it may have less success as a community. And the judgment whether to have, what balance to have of supranational and national and subnational arrangements or forms of government is a judgment that has to be made from time to time and um, sovereignty doesn't dictate that judgment. I think it's a serious mistake to think that it does. Um, there's no doubt a, a perception, a consciousness of autonomy which was influential with some in the Brexit referendum. Um, but in the end it comes down to what's the best way of 
making this human arrangements work. And sovereignty doesn't answer that question. It simply tells you who has to make those decisions. In the modern era when the formal equality of states, as Solomon puts it, is recognised, how can it be justified that certain states are more formally equal than others by still retaining the veto in the Security Council? Well, we know why the five states have to veto on the Security Council, because it was withdrawn from the others. It was, there was a veto in the League of Nations Council, uh, including a veto for, part, for parties to disputes. And it was found that didn't work. The price of having the UN was that the key powers of the time and prospectively for the future, because China wasn't a key power at the time, um, were granted that veto. And that was done with the consent of the member states of the United Nations, 193 states. No one can, uh, you can complain about the veto as a matter of policy, but you can't complain about it as a matter of law. That's what, what the Charter provides. And you're a member of the Charter. If you don't like the veto, get out of the United Nations, which you're entitled to do. Um, Finally, Ray, Article 38, I was particularly interested in Professor Charlesworth, Chapter 8, in view of Boyle and Jenkins' 2007, page 211, description of these as dated and increasingly misleading, do you think that there needs to be a revision of these last, the last four the list of four categories that have been used? Well, it would be nice if we could have a revision, though I'm, I'm sceptical as to whether the revision we would get would be any very much better. We're used to the categories we can we can use and we can apply them. Um, we don't treat them too seriously. We we take it, pay attention to other factors. For example, the work of the International Law Commission can't be fitted into the sources of international law uh, as it stands, and yet it's been extremely influential. Um, so it's uh, it's part of the history of the subject, and let's not worry about it so much. That'd be my attitude. Brings us to stake responsibility, the general part, published in 2013, your last major text on a specific topic, published about the same time as you gave your Hague lectures. It was the penultimate text in your remarkable period at the time, end of your time at the Lauterbach Centre, and its preparation must have been undertaken while you were compiling your lectures and engaged in several ICJ cases. Must have been a very busy time for you, Judge Crawford. Well, uh, state responsibility drew on the work I'd done over a long period of time. Um, so it, it wasn't, it didn't come out over, so to speak, out of an egg. Um, it was a compilation of material which I'd produced over time and reflections on subsequent decisions and so on. Um, I, again, I had help with it, which is acknowledged in the preface. But it, it was an attempt to systematise my thinking and work on responsibility and to justify the ILC articles uh, as a general matter. Was the publication something that the ILC encouraged you to do? No, they didn't have any view about it. 
the ILC is a rather curious body. It works on one thing and it works on something else. It doesn't have... Um, it has a number of themes to its work, of which responsibility is certainly one. But it doesn't have a standing authority to encourage um, or to sponsor, still, still less resources. This was the second attempt to produce a draft. The first had taken 47 years. You undertook the second draft and you did it in three years. Four years from date of appointment. Right. Appointment 1997, we finished in 2001. Right. Four sessions. Four sessions. It was, the second draft was annexed to the 2001 GA resolution 5683. What was the secret of your success in bringing it to fruition so rapidly? Well, it was the, f it was the thing that the Commission was working on which was most important. Um, there was a broad consensus amongst the influential members of the Commission, including um, the US member Rosenstock, the French member Pelé, Italian member Gaia, and others, that it should be given priority. And it was a time I wasn't expecting to be re nominated to the ILC in 2001, so if I was going to do it, it had to be done in that period. And it was helpful to say to people, we've got to do it in four years. Um, I've always tried to make institutions which I've been party to more efficient. Sometimes they needed it. Um, I don't think it helped the, the articles that they took so long to produce in the first reading. Although the thoroughness of Argo's work in the, on part one has to be acknowledged and was very helpful. But they're over-refined, they needed to be simplified and completed. And a purse of some idiosyncrasies of which state crimes was the worst. Well, the reviewers heaped praise on the volume. Kreutz said it was a massive undertaking producing a coherent and comprehensive exploration of the general law of state responsibility. Your, the book is so good it's impossible not to like it. Daspremont, an impressive work, stands apart, the most authoritative and extensive treatise on the rules and practices pertaining to state responsibility. It will become a form of holy writ of state responsibility. And this praise was given by academics, whom you clearly impressed, was it written primarily for such an audience? It was written for the standard audience of international law books, which was a combination of government officials, uh, scholars, and students. I didn't have a particular reader in mind. So, some points raised by the reviewers. Dustin Moore makes the point on page 984 on the historical pedigree of our work that you see it synthesizing a variety of heritages in contrast to a linear paternity, which is why you single out the work of various Americans, Wheaton, Borchard, Equalton, rather than Anzalotti. Is, is this a correct interpretation? Yes, it is. Um, I, I think the Americans were very important. And the early American arbitrations, Venezuelan arbitrations and so on, were very important. Um, Argo, was obviously very important, as was Anzalotti before him. So the Italian tradition was strong, and Argo brought about the major reconceptualization of responsibility in the direction of a general 
set of principles about compliance with obligations, which I absolutely adhered to. But he was very fussy, and a lot of part one was excessively fussy and uh, went beyond what was necessary in order to achieve the result, particularly in part three, and in chapter three rather. And I did quite a lot of simplification in chapter three. Um, but the basic structure was Argo structure. So I tried, I tried to synthesize the Italian tradition and the American tradition with the practice of general international law. Another point picked up by Jasper Moore is that the famous controversy of the non-injured states being able to take countermeasures in the general interest. And he implies that you are unable to persuade the IRC to adopt this concept. Have you come to terms with the impossibility of imposing this idea countermeasures in the general interest? Well, I, it was the one issue on which it was clear we were not going to get consensus, and I thought the consensus on the text was essential. I pushed it and became clear that consensus couldn't be achieved. But much more important than that, because countermeasures is a rather specialised subject, is the principle that non-indigenous states have got the right to complain at violations of certain rules of international law. And that's reflected in Article 48 and is fundamental to my conception of international law. Otherwise, international law is fundamentally a set of bilateral deals with no supervening public interest. And that's not my conception of international law. If we have a problem which is a global problem, no state is injured by any emission of uh, CFCs in the atmosphere, and every state is injured, um, but not injured to an acceptable degree. But every state must be able to say, if we're going to protect the ozone layer, you can't do that. And that's now, I think, widely accepted. Uh, Australia complained of Japanese whaling, not because Australia was injured by Japanese whaling, but because the world had made a decision, rightly or wrongly, to protect the great whales, in my view, rightly. And therefore, the scientific exception to the, the, the moratorium of the Whaling Convention was a matter in which Australia had legal interest, like all, all other states' parties to the Convention. Obligations ergo omnes, partes, I should say. Um, and that's, I believe, widely accepted. And it's got nothing to do with countermeasures. Right. So, Jasper Moore, concluding remarks, say that you confront criticism of the RC regime from governments and scholars, but he wondered why you didn't mention Philip Allard's famous argument that RC will conform rather than confirm, rather than constrain power, and are a convenient veil behind which a morally responsible person can take shelter. Well, I, I don't, don't want to engage in the general metaphysics of international law in terms of working on responsibility. Of course, responsibility confirms power. International law confirms power. Uh, confirms the responsible use of power. And you can take a nihilistic attitude and say, I prefer to have a completely unconstrained system. I don't take that view. And it's implicit in what I've said. Um, 
I don't fully understand the attitude that we shouldn't make things better because that's the enemy of perfection. Things will never be perfect, but they can be improved. If that makes me a reformist, well, so will be. Kreutz, in his review, said that for a scholar dedicated to the topic and apropos your role as a Court of Justice judge, there is no better place than the World Court for you to clarify obscurities and inadequacies in the law of state responsibility. Do you also see your relatively new position on this court in this light? No. It's not the function of individual judges in international law, in the international court, to solve the problems of the world. It's the function is to decide individual cases. I bring my attitudes to responsibility to the decision of individual cases, and so do the other judges in the court. But the court's process is a collective process. And I don't, I, I have whatever influence on the court I'm entitled to have by virtue of the strength of the arguments in the cases in which I'm entitled to sit. And that's the beginning and end of it. Your state responsibility had been preceded by the even more voluminous OUP, the Law of International Responsibility, in 2010. This was an edited compilation by yourself, Alain Pellet and Simon Ollison, 104 contributions from a wide spectrum and included three chapters by yourself. Can you tell us how this compilation came about? Well, Pellet was working on a series of volumes published in French along with that format. He suggested that I'd be involved in it and I said, I, I don't... I think it'll have more circulation if it's published in English. He agreed to that. So we had many of the chapters, about 70 chapters produced in French, many of them translated by my associates into English. It was a real factory. And we commissioned other chapters and it came out as a collective work. And it has a certain value, but state responsibility, the general part, was my personal statement. That's different management. Excuse me, I just want to have a drink, if I may. Yes, of course. The last book in 2014, Charles Order Change. This can get
Facebook. With your last published book to date, a dense exposition of your views. And again, I apologize for only being able to pick and choose seemingly random aspects. These lectures were published in 2014, but given in 2013. Could you summarize the circumstances under which you were invited to give the lecture and their planning? Well, I remember the curatorium. There's a tradition that the international lawyers and the curatorium, if they want to, will give a general course at some stage, and I was asked to do it. Uh, it ended up being done in 2013. But a tendency of the general course is to produce rather superficial accounts of the 15 chosen subjects of international law. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to address some more <coughs> fundamental problems. And the, the, the lectures are given over three weeks, five lectures a week. So I thought, let's find three big questions. International law is law. International law is a system. International law is the rule of, and its relationship to the idea of the rule of law. And they were the three general themes, and I picked five problems or topics within each of those. So that's how it was organised. According to one review, Jack Nelson, Hong Kong Kingwood Madison's, this work is described as, and I quote, Crawford defending his vocation from doctrinal attack. Is that how you saw it? Well, I, I think it's a fair comment. It's not that, uh, um, I, hope it's, I hope it doesn't come across as defensive. But if it does, then it's fair comment on the part of the reader. Um, I wanted to address questions which advanced students from international law, such as the auditors of the Hague Academy are, which they habitually ask, and I think which are entitled to be answered. Is international law law? Is it a system? Does it conduce to the rule of law? And there are three fundamental questions about our subject. I thought a systematic address of those questions was a way of filling 15 lectures. You brought a review by Pierre Bordeaux to my attention, and I can make a few points. Bordeaux refers to the Baxter para paradox and its effect in relation to R.C. work, which you mentioned, paragraph 342 to 3, in the Belgian Senegal Court of Justice case. You say the court applied customary international law by stealth. It's paragraph 166. And I wonder if you can explain what you meant by this. Well, uh, perhaps a, a rather over-dramatised way of saying it. But the key question in Belgium, Senegal, was what was the legal interest of Belgium in respect of allegations of torture against the head of state of um, which I can't remember which state it was now I should I should remember but in proceedings in Senegal 
Eston Harbury. I'm since convicted. And you might say that the legal interest of Belgium was because it had taken a procedural role under the Torture Convention in seeking trial or extradition. The court didn't do that. The court said, by virtue of the provisions of the Torture Convention, the prohibition on torture is a, is a, is a collective interest. Ergo omnes partes, they use the phrase. And that's what Article 48 says. Article 48 was an attempt to bring together strands of international law in, the, in various cases. The concept of peremptory norms, the concept of obligations over armies, the concept of obligations over armies partes in a systematic way. And if, if I had to identify the single most important contribution which I've tried to make to international law, it's Article 48 of the RC Articles. I was very pleased that in Belgium, Senegal, the court, in effect, endorsed Article 48 without mentioning it. And that's what I meant by stealth. Very interesting. So Bordeaux refers to your use of the S word, which he says is an expression borrowed from Louis Hankin. Yes. And he cites your statement that, to quote, who knows in what direction international law might develop if the notion of sovereignty was somehow abolished or superseded, paragraph 120. It would probably come back in another guise. And he relates this to what he calls the experience of the EU and refers to your page, 111, which is paragraph 124. And I wonder what you thought this other guise could be in the European context. Well, sovereignty is, I've already said, I don't think it's a useful term in trying to analyse the EU. But it's true that some of the proponents of the EU ideal are closet sovereignists in relation to Europe. And I personally don't agree with that. I don't think that the enterprise of making Europe into a single state is likely to succeed in our lifetimes or the lifetimes of my children. I don't think it'd necessarily be a good thing if it did succeed. The EU is, an, is a governing structure, bureaucratic structure in a way. It's not a popular union of peoples. It's not particularly organic. It could become organic over time. If it did, concepts of sovereignty might become more relevant. But I'm opposed to the use of what is, after all, a categorical concept to define something as subtle as the distribution of authority within Europe. That's what I meant, I think. Right. Still uh, on the review by Bordeaux, Ray, part three of the book, he said that your treatment of, I quote, international democracy, and he refers to the structural deficiencies of the Charter of the, United, of the Nations of the Union, which you mention, you both compare this to the 1789 French Revolutionary Constitution, which you say is a strong constitution. That's paragraph 571. Could you envisage what you call the, I quote, only current candidate for an international document, paragraph 593, ever being improved 
overcome the deficiencies to which you refer. Well, the passage says the Charter is the only current candidate for the national constitutional document, and that's a reference to the literature on national constitutionalism. I think it's a mistake to treat the Charter as a constitution, except in a very loose sense. And there's no sign of the problems of the UN being resolved by constitutional means. It's a pity that the national system seems only to be able to make radical change after world wars. And let's hope that it never has to make a radical change after another world war, because God knows what another world war would be like. That means we're compelled to live with imperfect institutions trying to improve them by stages. And they sometimes degenerate by stages as well. And you see both tendencies in the UN. I don't currently envisage the charter being changed into anything else but what it is. The title, you explain that the course of international law refers to the fact that we can only understand international law as a historical process which combines an intellectual tradition with, at the same time, a form of practical problem-solving. This implies that international law evolves as, a, as practical problems present themselves and suggests that an evolutionary process in international law is dependent on contingency. Would this be a fair conclusion? Absolutely. It's precisely what I'm trying to say. Of course, the, the phrase, the course of international law, was also a joke. Because it's the course of international law. The general course is the course of international law in the ordinary sense of course of lectures. Of but it's course of international law in another sense. The courses of international law. So but I don't mind jokes. To what do the chance, order and change in the title refer? Well, as you'll see from the cover photograph, that's a work by the British constructivist artist Kenneth Martin. And it's one of the whole series of pictures that he, abstract pictures that he drew, using a, a framework which created images of lines and colours from which the reader would extrapolate a pattern and then he could change it. And they, they, were, they were called chance order change. The colour photograph is chance order change number 12, four colours. But there are a whole lot of them. And that reflects my image of international law as something which happens to some extent by chance. We create order out of it, and it's then subject to change. That's a continual process, and in that sense, of course. So, in the writing of these lectures, for which you chose the topics, did this allow you to theorise more than usual than in the writing of your books? And if so, was this an opportunity that you relished? Yes, I think the answer to both of those questions. And with this freedom to write on any topic of your choice, did you clarify or learn anything about your chosen field during your rummaging in distant corners, 
international law that you might not normally have frequented? Well, I, I'd done work on many of these subjects and many of the chapters respond to or reflections of things that I've published in article form. For example, on change in national law, was a piece I'd done with Tom Viles on the Truman Proclamation. Um, so it consolidated work they'd done before and brought it together in, a, I hope, a fairly systematic way. I found the example of the Median Dialogue Sanitary and the fate that befell the Medians at the hands of the superpower Athens shocking. Are we to believe that anything has really changed in the way the strong treat the weak? Well, obviously there are examples of the strong treating the weak in terrible ways. But there's an, there's an attitude, especially amongst international relations writers, that the Median Dialogue is really the typical the median event, the, the oppression and the enslavement of the millions, was really typical of how modern international relations is and ought to be conducted. In my view, it's not typical of the way modern international relations is conducted in, in its extremes, though there are still occasions where it is true, nor is it how it ought to be conducted. So I, I took the case of Timor-Leste as the modern equivalent of the Merlin Dialogue and showed that the outcome was different, in part because of international law. And that's controversial, but I firmly believe in having seen at first hand some of the ramifications of that situation. Right. In your first part, and you And in part because of chance. Oh. In the first part of this interview, you, you did touch on the um, realism-idealism debate. Um, and in the first part of this book, you, in discussing this debate, you were attempting to refute the realist challenge to international law. And you state that if the antithesis of power is soft power, international law is often seen as the antithesis of law the law you have when you're not having law. Mm. And I wondered if you could elaborate on that. Well, I think to some extent, as I said earlier, when discussions about international relations get cabined into categories, such as realism and idealism, we're in trouble. I once came up with a vision of international law that was both realist and idealist. So that was the aim, whether it's successful as for others to judge. Um, realism is important to the extent it comes down to truth-telling. And if the reason we're not at war is happenstance, we, we better know that, because we may be able to reinforce the happenings that go, go to make up that happenstance. But if the reasons we're not at war include certain systematic features of the world, we should know that as well. 
and it's a contingency which of those two views is right, but they're probably both right and both wrong at the same time. You reject Herschel Artifact's notion that international law is in a transitional stage and evolving towards something very different. The alternative is that law is already well formed and will not evolve significantly. Is, is this, do I understand you correctly? I think law will evolve. Can't be, can't be stopped evolving, that's the element of change. But I, I don't think we should. I think we should concede that unless international law is moving towards the confederation, it's not law. Because it may not be moving towards the confederation. If it's moving towards the confederation, perhaps, let's see. But it may not continue to move in that direction. And its legal character shouldn't be dependent upon the remote future. I was particularly interested in your concluding sections where you introduced the concept of an international constitution based on a framework of secondary rules, peremptory norms that states cannot contract out, and being enforced by the Security Council and to some extent domestic courts. Is this, if such an international constitution ever comes about, how would you envisage it being implemented? Well, it'll be implemented by, by happening. It won't be implemented because someone holds a conference and says, let's agree on this. It'll be implemented because over a range of situations, it's found to be the best way of addressing problems. And it may be that what we have at stake in an orderly society in which people can deal with each other in trading relations, in human relations, in all sorts of relations, in a peaceful way, requires more coordination than we've got now. That'll happen as an evolutionary matter, because we don't have any choice, we don't. The alternative to evolution is war. And it doesn't seem to be a very realistic solution when we have nuclear weapons. In the final sections, while admitting various shortcomings of international law, for example, the areas of human rights, and the concept of a new international economic order and common heritage of mankind, you still strike a positive note. As Koskinyemi said in his review of Brownlee, it is a positive book. No doubt this reflects the spirit of its author. He goes on to say, however, that optimism is out of sync with widespread concerns over the state of the world it deals with. Judge Crawford, my question is, why are you so optimistic that international law will deliver for the world what you clearly desire? I'm not, I'm, my optimism is distinctly qualified, and qualified more sharply by developments since I wrote the book. To some extent, it's a question of what one would like to believe. I have to be honest about that. But if you look at, for example, the reduction in the number of people in absolute poverty, the improvement in understanding of environmental problems, patchy though it is, as witnessed the Paris Agreement controversy, you can't think that we're going to solve the problem of global warming 
by going back to coal without significant technological improvements in the handling of carbon emissions. And that's one of a hundred problems where we need coordination and legal devices are a key method of coordination. Not the only method, of course. Thank God, but a method. Let's not trash what we've got, because what we've got creates problems. And the problems would be worse if we didn't have it. In my peripheral reading, I came across the paper by your successor, successor in the new chair, Professor E.R. Benvenisti, The Conception of International Law as a Legal System, and it contains some comments on the role of judges in international courts. As a judge yourself, I wonder what your opinion of this is. He says that may the issue of viewing international law as a legal system, rather than a mix of discrete treaties, this empowers, I quote, courts to develop international law beyond the intention of governments, which amounts to evolutionary interpretation, as it calls it. This allows judges to promote what is legal rather than what is good and efficient. Do you see your role on the International Court of Justice in this light? Uh, probably not. The role of the judge in international law is to apply the applicable texts. And I can tell you as an international lawyer which texts are applicable. I know what the rules are about who's entered into treaties and who has not. And what those, how those treaties have been interpreted, I'm not necessarily right on all of those questions, but the questions are capable of an answer. The function of the court is not to produce a global synthesis of legal norms. It's to apply the applicable legal norms in an appropriate way. And the secondary rules have the feature that secondary rules of interpretation and so on. They assist in your doing so in a way that's appropriate, having regard to the coexistence of other norms. So they don't give you a license to go and improve things as you think fit. Well, trying to sum up your scholarly work by me would be presumptuous, but looking back on your illustrious career, can you reminisce on what you would single out as your most significant contribution to the advancement of international law? I think the Articles on State Responsibility and Article 48 in particular. But underlying that, the conception that it's possible to have a professional approach to particular problems of clients and of persons interested in particular situations and a view which is conducive to world order. It's combining those two which international law tries to do in my vision of it. Well, thank you most sincerely for two mammoth and comprehensive interviews and for being so open about your life and your work. This is a major contribution to the archive and I can only reiterate my gratitude for your generosity and your time in what must be an extremely busy schedule. Thank you so much. Leslie, thank you for the care you've taken.